You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we are with Professor Malcolm Langford, who's Professor of Public Law at the University of Oslo and also the co-director of the Center of Law and Social Transformation at the University of Bergen. Today, what we're going to be talking about is economic and social rights in an African and South African context, as this is one of Professor Langford's areas of expertise. So thank you, Professor, for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. So Professor Langford, if you could explain for our listeners, why is it important that we think about economic and social rights? So economic and social rights are often being viewed as the poor cousin of civil and political rights uh, in the human rights discourse. But economic and social rights uh, reflect values and concerns that are relevant to everybody, and at most points uh, in history, if we, if we think about it in that respect. I mean, for the first, I mean, every country, every state struggles with issues of poverty and exclusion. I mean, some states have, you know, rampant uh, extreme poverty uh, and others only have persistent but small pockets of, of poverty. But if we look at the issue globally, for example, take the uh, access to water, you know, around 660 million people do not have access to basic levels uh, of water. You know, it's around a tenth of the world's uh, population. Well, think every day, 830 women die in childbirth. So around 300,000 women die uh, every year. And we know what it takes to stop, uh, for example, death, death in childbirth. It requires investment of resources in emergency obstetric care. And despite promises from many countries, very little action uh, happens. We'll take something like the issue of right to social security, okay? access to social benefits uh, in the event of unemployment, sickness, uh, old age, disability, and so forth. I mean, four billion people okay, lack access to, to, to right to social security in any meaningful sense. So for people around the world and in Africa and South Africa, economic and social rights are real issues. It's what they think about uh, when they get up in the morning. Okay, Am I going to earn enough money today? Will I keep my job? Uh, is the school good enough for my child? Is there a school for, for my child? These are real issues. It doesn't mean that civil and political rights are also not important issues. Freedom of expression, protection from, from physical harm. I mean, uh, these are uh, the issues with violence are equally a concern uh, around the world, whether it's, whether it's armed conflict with, or, or violence within in the home. But I think it's very important for the human rights movement to continually recognise that the bread and butter sort of social rights concerns are real issues for, for, for everyday uh, people. And it's not only from an individual perspective that it's important to, to think about economic and social rights, it's also important to think about it from a, from a global perspective. The age of globalisation uh, has meant remarkable changes to the, to the way we organise our societies economically uh, and, and socially. It means that the job that I had today might be gone tomorrow, okay? It might be taken by a robot, it might be shipped over to, to another country, which might be good for people in that country, but it means that... Things are more precarious, things are more uh, unstable. And a part of globalisation with increasing investment and trade flows has also been challenges to labour rights, trade union rights. Um, we've seen across the world a reduction in the, the share of trade union membership uh, amongst the workforce. We've seen casualisation. 
where, for example, particularly workers in the service sector and agriculture sector are not members of, of union, and that might be fine uh, <laughs> when you start when you start a particular position, but it has real implications for people, whether they get paid, uh, whether they have fair working conditions, whether they can strike uh, or not. And as part of that whole, uh, the rise of globalisation has also been the rise of income inequality, which has really sparked uh, concerns, both within countries and across countries. We've seen a massive uh, increase in, in income inequality, where a few people can, you know, have up to 50 or 90% of the, the national economy in their pockets, whereas up to 50% of the population might only share in 5% of, of the national uh, wealth. And in some countries, there's been progress. Brazil was able to slightly reduce uh, income inequality. But in most countries, it's been on the rise. So in Africa, obviously, we've got a lot of um, income inequality. Arguably, it's affected by globalization more so than others, or at least some would argue it is. How is the continent looking at this from a regional perspective and even from a country perspective? How are economic and social rights looked at? How are they um, incorporated? As you say, you wake up every day and essentially you're going to think about this. So what are we seeing on a continental level? Well, if we start where you started in terms of uh, inequality, I mean, we can partly trace it to to colonisation. I mean, colonisation was... was partly or mostly about the extraction of resources from from Africa and, and Asia to the benefit of, of European uh, countries. And that has left its own uh, legacy in both in terms of uh, who invests in, in, in African uh, countries, who has capital, who has control over land resources, for example, but also the type of economy that we see uh, in, in Africa, which is predominantly sort of agriculture, agriculture with, with very little development of, of, of industry uh, or other services that enable African countries to, to say, compete on, on a global basis. But part of uh, inequality and, 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 and problems with social rights are also homegrown, where you basically have elite control over resources. And that, that's goes all the way down the chain, from, from ownership of land, water uh, and, and, and mineral uh, resources, through to control over production chains, through control over political decision-making, which then affects uh, allocation of resources, levels of taxation and so forth, but also the ability to engage in things like corruption uh, uh, and so forth. So when we start to talk about income inequalities, we can't look uh, away from the underlying political economy and the politics of, of social rights uh, uh, in Africa. So how do we change things? What is being done? Obviously, we're law- well, me and you are lawyers, not all our listeners are, but is this actually what helps? Is there a way that litigation is being used? How are we seeing the improvements if there are improvements? So from the perspective of, of lawyers, there's, there's two or three routes. So one route is obviously legislation, okay? Putting in... Uh, getting onto the law books, uh, uh, laws that regulate and promote uh, economic uh, and social rights. And generally, we've seen uh, progress uh, in Africa in a range of areas. Uh, obviously, South Africa has been leading, particularly in the post-apartheid area, with you know, really important edu- legislation, education, on, on a number of important acts on, on housing, uh, social, social benefits, uh, a range of schemes in, in South Africa 
which are quite impressive from a global perspective. If you look at the share of the of national GDP, share of national economy, which is used for social grant uh, allocations. But we're also seeing the same in a number of our other African countries, experiments with uh, social grant uh, systems and improvement uh, in, in education uh, in some areas, slow moves towards universal uh, health coverage. I mean, it's still moving from sort of policy experiments to full legislation in many areas. But I think that's the first area of movement we're seeing, sort of legislative change. And lawyers have a real role to play in, in making that happen. How, how, is, how can law be effective uh, in terms of the types of provisions, uh, whether it's defining what is uh, education, what are the respective duties on the state at different levels, how do we ensure effective uh, implementation and accountability uh, systems. I mean, for example, in, in South Africa, the, the, the PI legislation on... Um, uh, preventing or forbidding uh, forced evictions uh, without a court order has been much more effective than the ESTA legislation for evictions in rural areas because you know, one piece of legislation is very clear on what should happen, whereas the other is vague and, and it's not, not all the relevant parts of the law have been uh, passed. So the first is that the legislation matters and that also affects policymakers, also affects courts, it gives them concrete provisions that they uh, can, can uh, apply. But I think we can still also learn from, from perhaps from other countries. One of my favourite pieces of law is the Homelessness, Homelessness Act from Scotland. And it's a really interesting way of putting the progressive idea, of, progressive realisation idea of economic and social rights into practice. It states that within 10 years, if a homeless person does not have access to temporary or permanent access to accommodation, they have an immediate right to sue the Scottish Government and, 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 and get access. So there's a lot that can be done on the legislative uh, front, which is connected with policy. But also as lawyers, we also turn to constitutions and international uh, conventions, and we look what might can be look what can be used there. And we often want to turn to to these sorts of uh, rights because possibly the legislation is faulty. There's gaps uh, in in the legislation. Or we want to mobilise the court system to actually push governments, push parliaments, push other authorities to implement uh, uh, legislation. And raising it to the issue of human rights or constitutional rights gives new sort of uh, legal me mechanisms, but also symbolic force to the claims for change. On an African level, what are we seeing in terms of litigation and economic social rights? What is, what is the picture looking like? Um, if we go back something like uh, 10 years, um, 15 years, a lot of the attention was on South Africa and all the cases happening in South Africa and some of the emerging jurisprudence from the African uh, Commission on Human and People's Rights. Um, it's not only, say, the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, which has an array of labour rights, uh, social rights like social security and housing and cultural rights. The African Charter has a number of social rights, including some with a very sort of African nature, uh, like the protection from foreign exploitation, which, which was which used in an important case by uh, Nigerian communities against the Nigerian state for failing uh, to regulate the activities of a multinational oil company, which affected uh, environmental health, uh, food production, and, and so forth. But what's interesting when we move beyond the sort of South African experience the, and, and that of the African Commission is 
the last 10 years on the ground in different African states. On one hand, we've seen uh, constitutional reform uh, in a number of these countries where we've seen bills of rights expanded to include a greater number of economic and social rights and also more economic and social rights which are directly judicially enforceable. And perhaps a stellar example there is Kenya. In 2010, reformed its constitution with a new Bill of Rights and and really gave impetus to judicial reform and a judicial openness uh, to new types of cases. We've also seen constitutional reforms in countries like uh, Zimbabwe uh, and Tunisia in in North uh, Africa. The other major development we've seen is that African advocates have been more willing to turn to courts uh, in, in these cases. On one hand, we have the sort of early developments where, particularly under uh, authoritarian regimes, taking social rights cases to courts was a way of actually just having a voice on different issues, uh, for example, in Nigeria. Or in Egypt, even uh, before the African Spring, uh, the courts became one of the few places to actually advance economic uh, and social rights. So there were decisions, for example, on key issues which were raised. Uh, for example, the right to a minimum wage or access to HIV uh, medicines. These uh, orders were granted in 2010, the year before the, the, the Arab Spring. But with increasing democratisation, increasing in, in the independence of the judiciary in African courts, we've seen sort of tentative and growing steps across the continent to try and also engage courts in ensuring the implementation of, of, of social rights. And perhaps the most action we've seen is, is in Kenya in terms of the numbers of, 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 of cases, particularly around issues like forced eviction, housing rights, water, uh, health, uh, education. And in growing stream of judgments um, and also some important changes in policy as a result. But Kenya is not alone. We can also point to, to a number of other states, whether it's Botswana, whether it's Ghana, Nigeria, Uganda, and so forth, where courts are increasingly becoming part of social rights strategies for different groups. Of course, it varies in terms of how often you win and how often there is uh, impact uh, in practice, but there is certainly something changing at the moment. So there's two kind of points I want to raise from that, but going back to the Scottish example, if we could. So you're saying there, the courts are saying you have within 10 years, otherwise you automatically, the homeless person can bring a case. Why is this effective? If you could just explain a bit more as to why the courts might have taken this approach and what have we seen from it? So what some people say that the core of human rights, the raison d'etre of human rights is accountability. That, you know, governments can make lots of nice promises in constitutions, in, in, in legislation and so forth, but if you're not accountable for those promises, then little uh, may happen. And we understand this as, as, as human beings, okay? If somebody is watching me, I'm less likely to, to commit something that's morally uh, or legally wrong. That's why, for example, uh, anti-smoking laws have been relatively effective because they only ban smoking in public Places which turns us turns us all uh, into to policemen uh, or police women in policing this uh, particular law, and it's the same with this sort of economic and social rights issues that we've been talking about. If governments are answerable for non-implementation, uh, then they may more likely to do something. In terms of being answerable, I mean, there can be different ways. It might be hard uh, pressure, okay, there's a fine attached to it or there's some sort of political embarrassment from a political perspective or it might result uh, in, in, in a court case. 
But I think what's in, interesting about that legislation is that the Scottish government ties itself to the mast. It says, okay, we want to address this issue, but it's complicated. It's going to take time to find appropriate accommodation for all homeless pe persons. It's, we're going to have to invest new resources. We're going to have to employ people. might have to set up new programs. We're going to have to negotiate access to accommodation and so forth. So we're going to give ourselves time, but we're also going to put a deadline on it and make it really hard for ourselves if we're not achieved that, haven't achieved that within within 10 years and give really strong rights for people to make uh, complaints. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the figures, there's a massive increase in the budget allocated to, to, to homelessness policy in, in Scotland straight after the new law and a, and a rapid increase in access to, to temporary accommodation. So then moving Again, back to what you're talking about in terms of um, constitutions and legislation not always being enough or the only way that we can do this. So if you've got what happened with the Scottish courts where they are able to do such things beyond a symbolic value, what is the relevance of constitutionalizing economic and social rights? What, what does it enable people to do that simple legislation on its own wouldn't? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, uh, lawyers have a, have a tendency to, to want to run off the courts and use courts to solve the problems, particularly in the common law tradition. But both from an individual and a sort of a strategic uh, perspective, courts can have a particular role to play in moving forward uh, economic and, and social rights. It really, uh, the story really begins uh, in in the United States in some respects. Already in the early 1970s, we saw these waves of litigation on the right to education at, at, the, at the state level rather than the federal level. Every US constitution includes the right uh, to education, but the financing mechanism is such that it is based on local taxes. So if you live in a wealthy area or industrialised area, you get a good school because the rates or taxes are high. You live in a poorer area, you get a poorer quality of schooling. And so massive differences geographically between the levels of funding, which then re results in different levels of quality of education. And, you know, activists, parents have tried to shift this system for really actually over a century, almost two centuries, if you go back to the late 1700s in trying to get proper financing for uh, American schooling. But these um, groups were inspired by the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case by the US Supreme Court, which required the desegregation of, of American schooling. And they thought, well, it worked in terms of discrimination. Maybe it could also work in terms of social rights. Using the courts to push uh, um, congresses in this case to change. Because the key political blockage there was that middle class groups, who largely benefited from the existing system, didn't want to cross subsidise poor areas but they dominated uh, or held the balance of power uh, in, in Congress. So often Democrats uh, or Republicans, or particularly Republican parties, were more sceptical to this sort of cross-subsidisation. And so courts were brought into the picture. Overall, roughly half the cases were successful across the, the US states. And in those cases that were successful, we do see a slight increase in the amount of funding, uh, around 250 to 500 US dollars per student, uh, in, in, which is a significant amount of money. It doesn't close the gap necessarily uh, with, with wealthy uh, schools. But that's not, that's not only what litigation is about. So one is materially about, can we get more financing to, to uh, lower income uh, schools? But it's also about political change. 
that sometimes the act of litigation can draw together uh, a social movement or sustain a social movement. It can also ruin a social movement if it, if, if it becomes too controlled by lawyers or the litigation becomes the dominant uh, factor. But what we see in many countries uh, around the world is that litigation sustains or, or provides a space for, for more marginalised communities or marginalised social movements. So one of the things I've done is uh, study housing rights litigation in, in South Africa and particularly urban communities that are living in shacks that have no secure tenure, they have no access to water and sanitation, they're at risk of uh, floods, often at risk of eviction by public or, or private public authorities or private actors and also at high risks of, of violence. And they have very weak contacts to major social movements, okay? They don't have great contacts with trade unions or national uh, NGOs or health and uh, medical associations and, and, and so forth. And so what we've seen in practice is that when they've been threatened by forced evictions or other challenges, mobilising the courts, you know, going to court, getting a lawyer has provided them with some sort of political strength. Many of the cases I've investigated They've never been able to achieve a meeting with a municipality until... Well, they only were able to achieve a meeting once they got a lawyer involved or once they took the case uh, uh, to court. And the case also becomes a focal point for, for community mobilisation, you know, uh, form, forming uh, steering committees and chairmanships and, and, and so forth. And so we also saw this with the Treatment Action Campaign uh, case in, in the early 2000s. That was a political movement, but strategically loose litigation to move its political agenda forward. The, the big, the, ma the major aim for the, the Treatment Action Campaign at the beginning of the 2000s was to have a rollout of antiretroviral uh, treatments for, for individuals who suffered from HIV. But they chose a very specific case which involved the prohibition of, 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 of medicines uh, for mother-to-child transmission of HIV. It was a rather, ra a rather strange um, uh, prohibition which came from the president about the distribution of these medicines. It was also a rather cheap uh, medicine in comparison to the others. But provided a very useful bridgehead. They managed to mobilise uh, multiple uh, actors. They had the trade unions, the churches, the medical associations, the NGOs. They worked with communities across South Africa. And there was consensus uh, on this case. And they, wanted, and they also used the case to create a public debate around the issue. And that's one of the wonderful things about courts. They create classical narratives and stories. And you, you launch the case on the steps of the courts, on the courts, uh, still on the steps of the courts. So that's act one, okay? You know, we're, we're going to court, so that gets attention. Then the, the second thing is in court, you know, there is all the drama around the arguments. And, and then finally there is the decision uh, that comes. And, and the treatment action campaign largely won the public arguments during the litigation. And then they also won the eventual case. This then gave them legitimacy to move on with their broader aims. And they were invited to sit on, um, you know, public committees, influence the shaping of policies. They didn't need to return to court on many issues because that already won the broader victory of which litigation was, was part of. So you can almost see litigation as one step in a process to achieving an end result or one result that could lead to potentially more results. And if you're not one of the lucky treatment kind of action campaign cases where, you know, you 
focus, or at least the majority of the media tends to focus on the case. But what happens after a case? And we hear a lot about it, and the thing is like, what is an impact? And then you bring in compliance, like our governments or whoever the case has been against, how are they complying? But what does this actually mean? When we say an impact, and in the treatment case, yes, we can see the impact they went on to do policy, and they do that. But what kind of things should someone be expecting if you get your case heard and we've got public debates going, what is a realistic expectation for an impact? Or maybe, sorry, I should clarify a bit more. As, no, no. When I'm talking about an impact, do I mean that the government is going to give me something right now today? Or is it that actually a court could still decide, for example, the within 10 years? Well, many homeless people would not have had a change in their situation for a long time. Can we say that's a positive impact? Or are we focused more holistically and we're looking at actually we're seeing a policy shift? Should that be considered a change? Because these are hard things, as you're saying. So what? how do we focus on them? What kind of things happen? I would warn against excessive optimism and excessive uh, pessimism. It's important to, to recognise that social rights litigation can lead to change, but it can also lead to nothing or, in fact, distract uh, uh, our attention from more effective uh, strategies. I've interviewed many lawyers who have taken leading cases, and it's surprising how many actually don't know what has been the eventual uh, result uh, of the case. Was the order complied with? Was there broader uh, impact? So when one reads these sort of shiny, about these shiny, flashy judgments in law reviews or newspapers, it's important to reflect on what actually occurred at the end of the day. Was the compensation uh, paid? Uh, was the eviction stopped? Was the house uh, allocated? Was the classroom built? Was there a change in social security or education policy? Was, the new, was new legislation uh, introduced or a particular provision excised or taken out of, of the law? When we look at the research on compliance with economic and social rights judgment, we see a fairly uh, consistent pattern, <laughs> and that pattern is variation. So take, for example, the, the, the cases I mentioned earlier in the US on, on, on right to education. We see you know, significant compliance with, in, in many states and, and not in others. I've also, we also have compared compliance between civil and political rights and economic and social rights, and we find the same patterns, variation in, in both sets of rights in the level of implementation. Of course, measuring what is compliance is challenging. Um, you know, compliance on one level is simple. It's like, what is to be done, by whom, and when? But in practice, all of those things tend to be contested or fuzzy. Okay, so the moment a judgment is handed down, there's a new political battle as to what, uh, what, what the rights are. The judges have lost control of the case. It's now they're out in the public. The parties and others now compete with their interpretation over what is to be done, who is to do it, <laughs> and when it is to be done. This makes measuring compliance rather challenging, we also find that in most judgments, there's more than one order. In many cases, you can have compliance with one order, for example, compensation, but not with another order changing policy. So it makes it difficult to conclude conclusively <laughs> whether there has been uh, compliance or not. And sometimes partial compliance is, is really important. I mean, 
okay, maybe a government only implemented six of the ten orders, but those six of the orders are really important and make a material difference in people's lives or in public policies. Or we see other states where they consistently only pay compensation orders but never uh, engage with courts and their requirements on changing public policy, reforming institutions and, and so forth. We also need to ask why we see such differences uh, in compliance. If it's not about the types of rights, okay, whether it's free expression or social security, it's obviously about something, something different. And here we need to take a broader view. Sometimes it is the nature of the cases. If a case is more complex, involves more resources to implement, which can affect both social rights cases and civil rights cases, then compliance may take a longer time or it may not happen at all. On the other hand, we see cases where that are very complex, require, for example, movement of thousands of people, building of housing, but implementation is very quick because the courts have incentivised compliance. They've made, for example, non-compliance very costly. So in one case, a uh, South African case, the municipality had to pay a farmer compensation every day for, for the presence of informal settlers on, on, on his property, which meant the municipality then, uh, <laughs> uh, not only respecting the property rights of the farmer, they, they were also incentivised to quickly build housing so, in fact, they could stop paying uh, this compensation to the farmers, so leading to what I've described as sort of South Africa's fastest housing resettlement program <laughs> as the municipality realised the cost of not complying with its housing rights obligations. But we also see beyond the, the, the concrete cases as to whether you know, they're complex or not, one of the real difference, the real, the real challenge, one of the real game breakers is who's your opponent and how strong they are. Um, it's one thing to take a case against a, 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 a weak municipality, but a powerful central government department may be a more difficult opponent and implementation may take longer. So the statistics from... Costa Rica revealing on this. You know, you can have a 100% rate, success rate against sort of lower level government authorities, uh, but only 25% success rate against centralised actors. But that's only part of the picture. In some other countries, like in South Africa, you may have the reverse. You may have faster compliance against uh, national departments because they may have high levels of competence uh, and more able to act more quickly, whereas things can drag out at, with lower... Uh, at the lower level with municipalities because it's a lack of competence uh, to actually implement the, the decision. The key factor, the most, perhaps the most important factor that we see is the degree of social mobilisation. That litigation, whether it's to individual or it's collective and strategic, that involves multiple actors, for example. So you get support from NGOs, social movements, lawyers, professional associations and so forth really helps in terms of the follow-up uh, to the decision. Likewise, uh, community uh, mobilisation. So if a community is, is well organised, they, they have ownership in the case, they're able to follow up effectively in terms of implementation, uh, that makes a real difference. Um, but if the community is split, the lawyers have taken over to, to, to <laughs> a great extent, then compliance may, may be, uh, take a, a significantly greater amount of time. I know you've done a lot of work on the Hrupam case, which is obviously one of South Africa's touted, shall I say, judgments. 
It's usually considered a success in terms that there was a judgment made. But then we've obviously seen a lot of backlash. And I know me and you were speaking about this earlier today, but just I think as maybe a final thought, it's a nice quick example to kind of show the distinction between the impact for the individual, who the case may be about, and in terms of compliance and what happens longer down the line as well, I think. So could you just kind of explain on how you actually view that case? What has hit contributed to this discourse? So we've been talking a lot about compliance, specific orders that a court gives. But ultimately, we're, we're, if, we're, if we're interested in social change, we might want to know what are the broader effects uh, of the decision? Yes, you may get an order for compensation, but does this really change uh, anything? The Groupon case is a fascinating case because it's the first major social rights case uh, in, in South Africa. A, a marginalised community, community outside of Cape, Cape Town was evicted twice and ended up on the edge of a sports field facing a new eviction from, 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 from the municipality. What did they do? With the encouragement of the, the ANC councillor, they took a case to the High Court arguing they had a right to housing and specifically had a right to temporary accommodation and or, and or access to basic government uh, services. The case wound its way up to the Constitutional Court and eventually the court made a national order uh, finding that the municipality was in violation of its obligations to realise the right to housing, uh, not, not just the municipality but also the provincial government, the national government, because there was no uh, emergency uh, housing policy. It's a beautifully written uh, judgment. It sets out uh, the reasonableness tests uh, that South African authorities must develop reasonable policies, programs, laws in which to comply with their obligations to respect, protect and fulfil various social rights. But the decision has been critiqued uh, as having no uh, impact, no influence in practice, with the headline often being that Irene Gruppum, who was the, the community leader uh, uh, in the case, died without a house. And what I've done is actually gone and researched what actually happened after uh, the case. And it's a very different story once you start to trace the different impacts of the case. So if we just focus on the community itself and what they were seeking, they got a specific order uh, just before the Constitutional Court decision, there was a settlement order requiring provisions on some basic building materials, uh, some windows, in which they could improve the quality on the shacks on the edge of the sports field. And that was implemented, which I saw in, in January 2002 when I visited uh, the community. But what's interesting is the community also achieved two other things which were not in the official judgment. Uh, firstly, they obtained effective protection against forced eviction. As mentioned, they were evicted twice before, on the verge of being evicted again, but basically effectively stopped any uh, uh, future eviction. The other fascinating uh, direct impact for the community was that they obtained housing. So this particular newspaper report was misunderstood and, and, and misreported both in South Africa and around the world. What actually happened in process, in, uh, actually in practice, was the municipality partly misunderstood the judgment. They thought they had an obligation to provide permanent housing to the community, and that's certainly how the community understood also the order. 
And so what led then, what happened then was a series of meetings and investigations by the municipality. It was discovered that this community, the so-called Hupum community, um, actually wasn't the most disadvantaged group uh, in the area. There was a number of others, and they were prioritised first for permanent sort of RDP houses, so 25 metres squared housings with electricity, water and, and sanitation. But by 2007, six or seven years after the judgment, the process began actually for building them houses uh, in the sort of phase 4A development uh, in, in Wallerstein. And in fact, half the community at the time of Mrs. Wupum's uh, death was already moving into those houses. She'd chosen a second sort of building uh, option, which involved uh, contractors who turned out to be uh, corrupt, which slowed down the process of, of, of that building. But the visits that we did in uh, 2014 and also in 2019 show that more than 90% of the community have now actually have permanent housing. And it's not just that, the materialist aspect, the, the whole court litigation actually led them to becoming a fairly coherent and uh, community uh, with, with clear leadership and they've played an important role in housing policy in, in, in the broader area. If we go to the broader impacts of, of this case beyond the specific community that took it, we also get some paradoxes. On one hand, we have the one significant order uh, from the court which found that the lack of an emergency housing policy was a violation of the right to housing. There we get compliance. Not 2005 National Emergency Housing Policy. So it looks great, 100% compliance by, by, by the state. In practice, you might, might all argue that it's like zero uh, impact. Why is, why is that? Firstly, the national emergency housing policy is never used in urban areas to support vulnerable groups. It's only used in urban, urban areas to facilitate new evictions and provide temporary settlement as a part of these uh, evictions. Instead, it's mostly used uh, for emergency uh, housing in um, rural areas after natural disasters. But we see other impacts of the decision which are not encapsulated in the order. It has influence on the development of, of slum upgrading policy. It, has, it clearly builds a basis for later jurisprudence on forced evictions and other social rights. So 20 years now of South African social rights jurisprudence and cases and other victories have really built on, been built on this uh, decision. And it also sent a message to, to public authorities that they could be sued for failing to comply uh, with their rights. Politically, uh, the decision has had somewhat of an impact uh, in the public debate, but certainly nothing like the treatment uh, action campaign. And that sort of shows a difference between much of the housing rights litigation and the sort of the health, health rights litigation. And it hasn't had that broad national push, national social movements, that it might have been able to leverage greater change in, in, in housing policy. And in that respect, that's why we see repeat litigation in housing. We haven't been able to use it yet to majorly transform housing policy at the local and national levels. And that's partly because something like housing policy is so fragmented. Okay? It's just because a decision is made in Pretoria doesn't mean things will change on the ground because local authorities have a responsibility for that. And so things can vary dramatically from municipality to municipality. It also means the communities and social movements are also very fragmented. It's very difficult to work nationally. So in that sense, I think courts will continue to play, play a particular important role for an area like housing because courts become 
in a sense, allies of, of communities, one of the few friends that they can uh, find, whereas it may be less relevant in other areas of, of policy. Professor Langford, thank you. You have definitely painted a picture as to why social and economics rights are part of the discourse in the way that they are and the complexities. And it isn't just African countries or um, economically disadvantaged countries which are having these problems and the same kind of debates, but we're seeing it globally. So thank you very much for joining us. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestras, in conversation with Professor Malcolm Langford. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues.